so it is definitely your turn to host, Pete, because the last episode you were not part <laughs> of. Because I haven't so. done uh, this <laughs> ever. <laughs> yes. yes, it is. Cool. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your hosts, Pete Romberg, and I am getting over a summer cold for the record books. So, uh, you too? <laughs> yeah, I, I think everyone is at this point, but I was like incapacitated for a lot of last week. Um, as, I'm sorry. As my favorite Onion article uh, describes, woman in childbirth only begins to experience the pain of a man with a cold. Oh, uh, God. That was me. <laughs> uh, joining how whiny, me. How whiny did you get? I'm not whiny. I just cocoon when I get sick. Like, don't touch <laughs> me. Don't talk to me. Blah, blah, blah. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, joining me, as always, and whom you've already heard from, is my fellow co-host. Hi. Martha Sullivan. Also congested, although I think it's just allergies and not a full-blown cold. Uh, but I'd like to apologize in advance to our listeners for any untoward sniffling I may do and forget to mute my microphone for. Yeah, this is going to be the sniffle-sode. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us this week uh, to talk about modern updates to Greek mythology, which I am super excited about, is uh, returning guest Austin Morgach. Hello, everybody. Um, yep, I'm Austin. Um, I picked this topic to explore Greek mythology in its modern forms, as Pete said, and I'm really excited for it. So, and you're not yeah, sick, right? I am not sick. I should be sick after this ridiculous weather change here in the Midwest, but um, <laughs> I'm doing okay so far. So I'm crossing my fingers. Cool. Uh, on wood for you. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, well, like I said, we're going to be talking about modern updates to Greek mythology. But before we do that, we're going to share what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, so, Martha, let's start with you. What is stuck in your head? Uh, sure. So I have been on an audiobook kick lately. Um, I go back and forth between either listening to audiobooks or just listening to hours and hours of podcasts during my daily commute to work. Same. And right now I'm on a tear with some audiobooks and I just listened to a really lovely one uh, that I was very skeptical about because it's been a very like hot book club book in the community that I work in. And the community that I work in is very white and kind of bougie. So like the stuff that is very popular with the women in my community is not always stuff that I want to read. Um, and this book was a delightful surprise. It is Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. <gasps> oh, okay. <laughs> Which no, I, I had the exact same reaction. Like, oh, I'm not reading that. Um, I highly <laughs> recommend it, particularly the audiobook. The narrator is... Um, if you give me a quick moment, I can find her name, but she has a really lovely, like, soft, uh, southern, um, southern reading voice, uh, which made it very soothing. And the, the book itself is about, um, there's two, two stories going on, uh, one in the past and one in the present of the book, um, although the, the 
past is like 1955 and the present is like 1969. So mm, it's still uh, historical. Um, but it's about a girl named Kaya who lives in the marshes of, I think it's North Carolina. Um, but she, yes, North Carolina. And her like whole family at some point ends up leaving and leaves her alone uh, at the age of like ten, so she grows up. Oh wow! In the in the back marshes alone. Um, nice. So there's the story of her learning how to live and like how she learns about the marsh and all of the ins and outs of the uh, wildlife that lives there, um, and her life there. And then in the the present of the book, someone in the town that she lives in is found dead in the marsh. And, like, everyone's initial reaction is to blame the weird swamp girl uh, who no one talks to because she lives in the, the backcountry. Um, so it's, like, part murder mystery and also just part love story to this marshland. Uh, Cassandra Campbell is the narrator, uh, and I loved it. I just finished it a couple of days ago, and was pretty emotionally devastated by just like the whole situation oh nice okay all right well well, yeah did not totally unexpected okay (laughs) cool uh awesome how about you what is stuck in your head this week um Well, I unfortunately was taking a stats class, so my midterm was Thursday, and that was stuck in my head all week. So stats, Um, (laughs) that's a great thing stuck in your head. Absolutely terrible, oh my gosh. Um, But in terms of pop culture and things that I have been into... um, I mean, you went to a show on Tuesday night. Yes, we did go to Vampire Weekend on Tuesday. That was amazing. Our food that we got was Korean and like over on Madison. And that was also amazing. Um, I can tell you the thing that I was fascinated with at the Vampire Weekend concert, um, besides the fact that it was more of a chill set list than I was expecting, like it wasn't as, I guess, bouncy and like getting everyone excited and, and revved up as the previous show that we went to um, several years ago um, was that the main singer, and I'm terrible with remembering band members' names, so I Ez- apologize to all Ezra the Vampire Koenig. Weekend. Thank you, Ezra. Um, Husband to Rashida all the Jones. fans out there. Oh my or gosh. partner, okay, partner well, you know to Rashida Jones. know way more Jones. than I do about these people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if you noticed, Pete, but when we were watching the, when they were performing and they were doing everything, and he would sing, he had his guitar in the one hand, and then with his free hand, when he wasn't strumming, he would make all of these very rigid motions with his hand and emphasize the notes that he was singing. And he kept doing it through the whole show, and it was so funny. And once we noticed it, I could not get away from it. Like, he kept doing it for hours. And I was like, what are you doing? It was like he would beckon forward, but, like, with very quick motions or he'd like slide his hand outward like i don't even understand what he was doing but it was absolutely fascinating and that actually has been stuck in my head all week so <laughs> i i yep. did not notice that but i was standing oh behind gosh, some some taller i people, will show so. you later what he did it was awesome. <laughs> all right cool 
Um, well, what is stuck in my head this week is uh, Chernobyl, the HBO five-part miniseries, or, yeah, I guess oh, that's gosh. a miniseries, uh, yeah. which is so good and so... It's hard to watch because it's obviously, like, about such a, you know, viscerally difficult topic matter, um, but I think it might be the best thing I've seen in a long time on TV. Um, and I, I just saw the Deadwood movie, and I loved that, but, like, Chernobyl really, really did a fantastic job. Um, there's also a podcast where uh, Peter Sagal of uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me interviews the show uh, creator, and I would highly recommend listening to that after you've seen uh, the episodes. Um, I've been sitting, I've been sitting on that one because I know, like, I, from everything I've heard, it's great. It sounds very intense. It is. Uh, episode I, four is difficult. Yeah, I just have not been... I haven't been ready, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, this is also why I haven't finished The Handmaid's Tale. It's like, I can't deal with that right now. Mostly, like, I bring that up as my comparison because right now I'm very much into escapist things. Mm, sure. Um, I say having just talked about an audiobook that's a murder mystery and very much about, like, misogyny and classism and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I'm I'm having difficulties right now with things that feel too real. Ah, yeah. And I... the the visual nature of TV means that a lot of the TV that I'm watching right now is like Shit's Creek or <laughs> something you know, nice. Stuff that's yeah, stuff stuff that makes me feel good. And I know that Chernobyl won't make me feel good. I will get to it. I do. I will promise. <laughs> uh, I do promise that. But I just. I have to sit on it for a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I'd also well, I say... I agree with that, though. Yeah, I, also, it's it's a good, like... You can't binge it, because by, like, the end of the second episode, you're, like, exhausted. But you can do it in, like, two or three binges. Like, cause... I'm actually... I'm not, I'm not binging right now. Mm -hmm. I'm limiting to, like, one or two episodes at a time, just in my TV consumption in general. Sure. So that I can give myself time to, like, process stuff. Sure. Well, I guess I'm saying, like, that Chernobyl, like, one episode ends and immediately it's like, oh my god, what what is happening next? Go to the next episode. But after the second, it's like, yeah. I am exhausted. I need to take a break and process. Um, yeah, for sure. So, like, it's well-structured that way. Um, the fifth episode feels, like, different than the other four. So it's it's almost nicely set up to do, like, a 2 two, one situation. Um so, when you do get around to watching it, keep that in mind. Will do. <laughs> All right. Um, well, like I said, we are going to be talking about Greek mythology, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So, we will be right back to dive into uh, modern myths. And we are back. 
so today we are talking about modern interpretations of myths. Uh, we focus specifically on Greek myths, and we have a series of three very different, uh, but all very excellent homeworks. Um, this was, uh, for me, a smorgasbord of excellent uh, things and excellent topics because, spoiler, I love Greek myths. Um, we're going to go from most traditional to least traditional, which means we're going to be starting with Circe. Uh, Austin, go ahead and tell us about the homework you assigned. Um, so Circe is a book written from the perspective of Circe. Um, so she is, if um, listeners are familiar with the Odyssey, um, she is the witch that um, Odysseus stays on an island with after the Trojan War when he and his crew are trying to get home. And prior to coming to Circe, he goes through all sorts of crazy adventures um, that are listed in the Odyssey. And um, he finally gets to Circe's island and um, stays with her and recuperates and um, eventually goes on his merry way to get home to his wife and his son. Um, and so this book is written from the perspective of Circe, um, who is the daughter of a titan. And um, she, it, it really details her experiences about what she went through growing up, believing that she was powerless, discovering her power and discovering her identity along with that. Um, and then what the meeting of Odysseus when he came to her island, what that really did for her and how it changed her life's course, so to speak. Um, so it was incredible and very well written um, and very strong um, in all of its character development, not just the women. I um, would highly recommend it to all the listeners. Definitely. Yeah, I I fully loved this. I mean, like I said, if if I'm reading any like book and it's all about Greek myths or whatever, I'm like, oh, great, I'm in. Um, but especially this one, I thought it was... Um, I, I loved the first half because it was looking at all these myths from, like, directions I wasn't, um, like, I, I hadn't thought of before. Like, there's a scene where she helps, yeah. uh, her, her sister give birth to the Minotaur, and it's like, oh, right, yeah, like, the Minotaur was born at some point. That would have been, uh, a horrific experience. Um, but, and then the, the second half of the book, uh, once, um... Uh, basically once her, um, son by Odysseus, like, grows up and leaves, felt like an entirely different book where it was telling a myth that I didn't think about. Um, it's based somewhat on the, uh, Telegony, which is sort of a lost myth, um, like a lost, uh, ancient epic poem. Um, and it's, it, it deals a lot with, like, Odysseus after he gets home, and it's like, what is this, uh like, this clever person going to do after, like, 20 years of adventure. Now he's, like, the king of goat herds. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't work for him. Um, that That's obviously in the background. There's a lot more going on in the foreground. But I, I was really struck by sort of that angle and the the reinterpretation of Odysseus um, as, like, as not really heroic. I I also loved this book. I wept through most of it. Um I really appreciated because this book pulls in a lot of threads from different myths that I was familiar with 
Like when I was little, I was obsessed with the Dolores's Greek myths collection, which if any of our listeners out there are familiar with it, it's a big yellow book that has a ton of uh, Greek myths in it, but they're all very simplified. They're like the the Minotaur is in there, but it's very like sanitized for a a small child. Right, right. <laughs> it would need so, to be. So Cersei really re-examines a lot of the stories that I already was kind of familiar with. Like she it touches on um Prometheus and Glaucos and Scylla very early on and like what it would mean for a beautiful nymph to be turned into a horrific monster that <laughs> eats people now. Right. Um, and like the Minotaur and Daedalus and Icarus and like all of these stories, you now suddenly have this very strong, like central point that all of these stories are kind of spinning around Mm -hmm. and a perspective that you don't get a whole lot in mythology or in Greek mythology. Um, I thought that centering Cersei's experience as a woman in this environment that even in the like sanitized versions was really hostile to women like yeah um and kind of what that means for her to be witnessing all of this like violence and um you know the 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 backstabbing and political maneuvering of her family I I think you don't often think about the Olympians and the Titans as being like this huge interconnected family group. Uh, and I really enjoyed examining those connections in that light, like mm-hmm. who is whose cousin and who is whose mother and all of this, like all of these inner, um, interrelated family, uh, family issues. Yeah. I was I was talking to one of my coworkers who said that she started it and eventually like she didn't finish it because she did not have she felt really it it like was hard lost. for her to connect to it yeah cuz she did not have the same kind of fascination like immersion with Greek mythology that I did so she said yeah I didn't know who any of these people were I didn't know like what was going on and I, I wanted to know if you guys felt that the book is in a, like if it could be inaccessible to somebody that didn't have um, a background already in these stories. That's that's I, a... hadn't, I hadn't thought so, but that could just be because I'm already like I... so in it. Right. That that's hard for me to come at like cleanly because i'm so like deeply yeah. invested like when when early on helios brings cersei to like go check out his cows i'm like oh the cows of helios they're a big thing um but i i, I guess i could see it well and i think the the um... big part the big one for me that i was thinking about was that you get to see how like you get to see these stories where they intersect with cersei's experience but a lot of them, they don't really follow the stories to the end. Like, we get bits and pieces through the news that she hears from Hermes and other characters. Well, like Jason but, and Medea, kind of. 
Right. Like, I know how that story goes, but this book is not that concerned with how it eventually plays out. Right. So I, I, my, my thought, I guess, would be twofold. One is that it's sort of like self-selecting. Like, people who like this book are likely to be coming in with already, like, a baseline enjoyment or understanding of the myths. Um, and then on the flip side, and this is something I was doing a lot while reading it, was, like, there's wiki. Um, and obviously that take, that takes a lot more work to do than just like sit down and read a book. But like, I like doing that sort of stuff. So while I was reading this, I'm like, Ooh, I don't really remember who Glaucos is. Let's just look that up real quick. Um, I actually, I did the opposite. I was a little bit like, I think I know who Cersei is, but I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to spoil the book for myself. Well, I think that's kind of, well, okay, so I knew many of the myths in this story. Um, I did not know all of them, or I didn't perhaps have, like, the most complete remembrance of them. I think I kind of had a similar experience, um, Martha, to where when I was younger, I was definitely a major book reader, and my parents had this huge mythology book um, as, like, a coffee table book, kind of. And I would steal it sometimes and go read all these incredible stories. And it was different mythologies from all over the world. And it was definitely not for little kids. I don't think I understood half of what I was reading um, <laughs> in terms of the non-sanitized parts. But it definitely made an impact on me. Um, and so that's kind of where my initial fascination came from. I don't have a firm grasp of all of the characters in this story from before. Um and so going into it, um, I remembered people like Skyla, and I remembered um, the Minotaur, obviously, um, as being like a huge character in Greek mythology. And like some of the major guys I'm really with, um, but some of the, I guess to me, I would consider Glaucos more of a minor character. And I didn't remember him at all. And as someone coming into it, I have a strong fascination with mythology, but probably maybe not quite as much as you two if you remembered people better than I did. And I, just as someone who loves literature, kind of took the book at face value, so to speak. Um, and I, I wanted to Google a little bit, but I didn't have a lot of phone battery at the time, so I wasn't <laughs> able to. And so I kind of just That's a good way to, to keep you from doing it. Yeah, and so um, I looked at the story from a perspective of I kind of remember who she like who Cersei is and and what she did. But once I really got into it, it was like I almost didn't need the full background story of everyone because the story in itself wasn't really about them. It was about her and her perspective on these things that were happening. Like she got to hear about what happened to these people later but in the moment it wasn't really as relevant because it wasn't about her or it didn't connect to her anymore and like she had already moved on to a whole nother situation or conflict or, or what have you um yeah and I, so I, I really i liked that once you get to exile to i i uh, i think it really like sort of and, like, if you can get to that point, I think you're right, Austin, that, like, e even, like, a, a Greek myth neophyte could, like, start the, like, once you get to that point, it's, like, sort of a self, a, a story that is 
self-contained enough that even if you don't know about Jason and Medea, you can be like, all right, well, like, uh, that's her niece. Uh, bad things are going to happen. They're going to go away now. Clearly, they're important, but, like, it's it's still part of, like, the self-contained Cersei narrative. Yeah. Um, the one thing this, this reminded me somewhat of a, uh, 2005 Margaret Atwood book, book, uh, which I saw performed as a play called the Penelope ad, which is about like the Odyssey from Penelope's point of view. Um, and especially oh, cool. the, the Greek chorus of it is the, uh, 12 handmaidens who, um, Odysseus ordered killed and who Telemachus like hanged. Um, yeah. so it, it's. A really, it was a really fascinating play. Um, Austin, my friend, directed it at the Swing Park uh, right by where, like, right across from uh, Lakefront. Um, oh, cool! So, like, they okay. use like the swings as like a boat and everything. Um, but it, it like really sort of focuses on like the 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 gender double standards and everything. Um, so those like that and this kind of seem like they're in not quite dialogue with each other, but like mm-hmm. looking at Greek myths from like sort of the same direction. Okay. I have not read that, or I haven't heard of that one before, but, um, like, when you bring in Penelope, I thought that her character introduction at the end was extremely interesting to see um, most people, if they're familiar with the Odyssey and Greek mythology, when they talk about Penelope, she is such a huge but unseen force in the book, because she and um, their son is the whole reason that um, Odysseus at home he didn't have connection to her that relationship to her perhaps that like idealized image of what she was 20 years later whenever he finally got home um, like have just stayed adventuring forever and never actually made it and she was like this woman on a pedestal that when he finally got home he was like oh my gosh you know life in front of the fire what am I going to do a backstory in this that you never get to have. Like she gets to have a voice and a vision and a conclusion as to like, you know, like I'm still alive. I'm still living. I still have a role to play. And I thought that was very cool. Yes. Well, I was very just overall very pleased with the fact that Cersei, the, the primary characters in this book are the women. Mm hmm. So, you know, so frequently and there are there are like female goddesses and like prominent uh, female characters in these myths. But I, I feel like, like I said before, a lot of the characters that get so brutally used are also the women. And I appreciated that this story is about their motivations and their reactions and you know, like, why Pacifei did what she did with the Minotaur. Like, that. those are the, the perspectives that I... Uh, that I haven't seen before, or that I, I think that are missing right. frequently Yeah. in the, the very basic myths, and that's this whole book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was the purpose of the book, too, is to give a voice oh, yeah. to people who were, you know, when historically thinking have had a 
greater role in telling how in telling those stories and how they come across and how they've been passed down through the centuries and to give out such a large audience um, and such a large group of who also had a voice and a perspective, um, I think is very, very common in how history has been told. And I think that now with, um, you know, dare I say, it sound radical, like with the rise of women voices that we're seeing um, in literature, especially um, in, you know, it's been happening for a while, but especially recently in how people are choosing to retell these stories and imagine how women would have found power in, male-dominated society is extremely interesting and um, fascinating to look back and see like what life could have been like and how they were able to find that power and wield it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts on Cersei before we move on to our next homework? All right. Martha, tell us about Lore Olympus. Okay, so Laura Olympus is a weekly webcomic that releases on Sundays. Uh, it is drawn and written by Rachel Smythe, and it is a long-form reimagining of the Persephone and Hades myth. So it focuses mm-hmm. on uh, Persephone and Hades and their relationship, uh, but it is also very much a... Um, you know, is involving a lot of the other mythological figures. Uh, the whole thing takes place in sort of an urban contemporary setting. Although I think when we get glimpses of the mortal realm, I think that is still very much happening in ancient Greece. And then Olympus is this very corporate, modern, uh, you know, updated setting. Um, in one of the question and answers the author did on a, one of the bye weeks where she didn't produce anything. She did specifically state that um, the mortal world was classical Greece um, as we think of it, and that Olympus was a modern metropolis, and she did that um, on purpose to draw the contrast between the two. Ah, got it. Um, so yeah, in this world, Persephone is a 19-year-old ingenue mm-hmm. who has just come to Olympus. Uh, to intern at the underworld. Um, She meets Hades at a party at the very beginning. Uh, Through the machinations of a jealous nymph, she ends up going home with Hades while she's very drunk. Uh, The two develop a uh, very cute uh, infatuation that is kind of developing over the course of the webcomic. And... As it goes on, we're also learning more about, you know, where Persephone came from, uh, what her whole deal is, uh, and just seeing how she interacts and reacts with all of the other uh, Olympian figures that we are already familiar with. Um, How there are currently, I think, 62 chapters up. Uh, How far were you guys able to get? in it the full 62 yeah it's a pretty quick read i thought yeah the plus side of being sick was that i had nothing else to do but read uh Cersei <laughs> and this so i was able to finish it <laughs> um, what did you guys think i liked it oh i thought it was adorable yeah it was and very, uh, i will sweet. probably keep reading it 
I love it so much. <laughs> Persephone I really is such it. a yeah. This this version of Persephone is such a like she's very innocent and naive, but also is such a tough little cookie that I am rooting so hard for her. Um, I think I... the author. I think the author has done a really good job of kind of contrasting her. Um, her innocence because she's only 19 and the rest of the Olympians around her are all like multiple thousands of years old. Um, and I think the author does a really good job of showing that Persephone is like young and innocent, but also really smart and pretty capable and contrasting that against like the, the older Olympians, their kind of impression of her as this very like young and childlike character and how that means that frequently they they underestimate what she is capable of. I really enjoy the dude bro nature of the Olympians. Uh, I thought she captured that aspect of them very well. Like it, the, the the corporate environment is is really like I I love the idea and and you touched on this earlier both of you that like the mortals are in ancient times and the the Olympians are in like modern corporate times. Um, and then while Hades is, like, running a, you know, rather soulless, massive corporation, which seems on point, uh, you have uh, Poseidon enjoying his PBRs and uh, Zeus, you know, going to brunch at a strip club, um, which feels very on point for both of them. Uh, so I, I think she captured, like, the, oh God, the essences of the gods very well. Well, and I love that, like, Apollo is a like a dude bro and his sister is just like having none of it and yeah. Hermes is a I kind uh, of love Hermes. <laughs> I love Hermes too. He's so dumb. <laughs> he is. But he means but he means so well. Um I really enjoyed the color contrast that author used or the artist used in um portraying the different gods and goddesses. Um and how she was able to use that color to contrast um, Olympus versus the underworld, um, especially towards the end of this series, as it is now published, at least, um, in like the late 50s when Persephone goes to work in the underworld. And she is like bright and pink and vivacious and springy and happy and all of these things. And then everything around her is in a completely different palette altogether. Um, and her her uniqueness really stands out um, even before you start to read the story and understand what's happening and how their relationships are being revealed or how they're developing. Um, and I thought that was very, very cool. I think between Hades and Persephone, it is um, perhaps the most obvious because the story is primarily about the development of their relationship, but with the other gods and goddesses as well, you can see um, how the author uses the color contrast to show emotions or manipulations or, or different feelings behind whatever is going on in the conversation. And I thought that was really cool and very well done. Do you guys have any thoughts on, uh, reinterpreting a story of an abduction into a story of romance i do actually cool um, i thought you might my primary one <laughs> is that we haven't gotten to the abduction yet 
mm. in Lore Olympus. So I'm I'm very curious to see how the author handles that after building up so much goodwill around Hades as like a more romantic character. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it is important to remember that even though it's an abduction story, it's an abduction story that for some reason everyone kind of allows, like in the original myth, like everyone sort of allows it to happen. So I'm actually pretty on board. <laughs> everyone but Demeter. Of... What? Everyone but Demeter. Well, but even even Demeter has to, like, th- there's a lot of compromising that goes on between everyone except Persephone, who is just sort of told, well, this is how it is now. So I'm actually kind of on board with the idea of retelling the story in a way that hopefully gives her more agency in mm. shaping her life. Because the, I mean, this, I, I think we, we have to acknowledge that this is not the way that the original story was intended. Like this, this new retelling does not have the intent of the original story. Right. Like, however it ends up playing out, it is clear to me that Persephone will have some agency in how her story goes. Um, And I don't hate the idea of reclaiming that story in a way that gives her more of a voice and more choice in what happens. You know, with with the understanding that this is not the original story right <laughs> which i would sucks. agree with that i think there's a parallel here as well somewhat between the story of how eros blamed psyche and how he met her and how he stole her away and the the original telling of persephone and how she was essentially stolen away um and i think we can kind of see that in the way that the mortals Um, show what happened between Eros and Psyche where the woman was basically told like this is your marriage this is what's going to happen and then this other man swoops in because he didn't like it and was basically took her away and created a new situation of uh, you know sexual romance marriage what have you Um, and so the women in classical Greece are told how things are going to happen versus in the world of the gods there in this particular retelling, there is that um, there is more of a opening in these um, subtle, I guess, uh, hints or red herrings that the author is starting to drop about how Persephone does have more agency. Um, and I think especially in the, the last one where um, the most recent episode where Demeter writes Hermes a check about something that he saw and he's not allowed to reveal it or it's going to go down basically. And that was an excellent podcast because I think it indicates that they have much more with the story and how Persephone um, discovers her own self-power. But between both this and Wicked and the Divine, I really love that like Persephone is... A, appearing in, I mean, like, a very limited sense of pop culture more now, and B, that um, her her state not just as, like, passive abductee, but, like, 
both a vegetative fertility goddess and also like a death goddess is sort of like being explored. Uh, Austin, you would really like Wicked and Divine. Okay. Uh, listeners of the show have heard Martha and I talk about it many times, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to go into it here. Okay. Yeah, I, well, and in, in connection to the Wicked and the Divine, I think it's interesting that in the most recent strip, um, we are, or the, the most recent or the one before that, um, we are all reminded that Persephone, you know, in its original Greek, means bringer of death, mm-hmm. which can mean a whole lot of stuff. Um, I think in the in the mythology that I'm familiar with, it kind of implies that when she leaves Earth to go, like she she takes the summer with her and brings on the winter when she leaves Earth to go serve her time in the underworld. Um. But could also have some uh, <laughs> some other meanings. Some other meanings, and that is very exciting to be exploring. Yeah. Um. I think she also has some connections to uh one of those. Actually, no. Cut this out. I don't have enough were, background knowledge to be you, talking about it. Were you going to talk about the Eleusinian mysteries? Yes. Okay. But I, was... I don't know enough about them to... That is a thing I have wikied multiple times, including this morning. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, okay. But, like, it, it was just a very popular mystery cult in ancient Greece um, around Persephone, Demeter, and, like, hate, like, the rape of Persephone. Um, and it was only women, right? Like, only women could be part of it? No, no, no. Uh, but it was, like, as a mystery cult, you had to be inducted, and you could not talk about what you saw. It was sort of like a chthonic journey-type situation where, like, inductees were led into a underground area and did some rituals and some ceremonies, and possibly there were some uh, psychoactive drugs happening, and then... Um, Most likely. Yeah. Uh, but, but, like, it, okay, it lasted yeah, for, I... like, 2,000 years. Um yeah, I'm getting it a little bit mixed up with the cult of Demeter and the Maiden, um, which I think was related, but not the same thing. Okay, yeah, sure. Right, yeah, because Persephone was the Maiden in that cult. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Persephone was, I mean, the point is that Persephone was a big deal. And I'm just, I'm just really excited to see her be a figure in, like, the main figure in these stories, uh, she rules in Wicked and the Divine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm very much. I'm very much infatuated with uh, Smythe's vision of Persephone. I love her. I love her very dearly, and I am looking forward to seeing how this uh, develops. Same. My one critique is that it's a, a little slow in the plotting, and if it's once a week, this is going to be a, a, a years. It already is a years long thing, so is that's it true. Years and long it, already. I mean, if it's like once well, a week, and it's a, I guess it's like a year and a half. Oh my gosh! I didn't and even this... think about that. I just started clicking. <laughs> well, and the story what? itself has only the story itself has only covered like four days of oh time. My right. Oh my goodness! All right. Um, last oh, thoughts on this before we go on to the last homework. 
Um, nope. I think we should. I think we should get a move on so that we can talk big picture stuff. Yeah. Also, this episode is going long, so. Uh, oh. There, okay. there we go. Um, I assigned the 2000 movie "Oh Brother Where Art Thou" by the Cohen Brothers. Uh, it tells the story of um, George Clooney and his two friends escaping from a prison a work gang. Um, he told them that they're gonna go get some treasure that he buried. Actually, he just wants to get home before his wife gets married. Uh, it is based loosely on the Odyssey. Um, there's a Cyclops, there's, uh, you know, gods and, uh, other, like, sirens, uh, other events that happen in the Odyssey sort of reinterpreted in a Depression-era setting. Uh, also with a phenomenal soundtrack and phenomenal cast and uh, Coen Brothers. So you've got your good, good uh, writing and sort of comedy. Um, I assume you guys have seen this before. Uh, what'd you think? I have, in fact. Yes, I love good. this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, it's... I, I am frequently guilty of saying that I don't care for the Coen Brothers movies when really it's that I don't like The Man Who Wasn't There. Because every time I say that, my sister goes, you do remember that they made Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then I have to re-examine like, my whole life. <laughs> um, I think George Clooney was a great pick for the Odysseus figure. I think he's very charming uh, in the way that he like talks his way out of everything is um you know just enjoyable to watch i do think that this was a very interesting pairing with cersei (laughs) yes Uh, and Uh, i thought it was an interesting contrast to see the two because they're not they're not totally different but i think the biggest the biggest difference is that Oh Brother or Art Thou doesn't get into the afterwards. No. So we just get the very charming kind of manipulative, but mostly like, well, actually I was, I was going to say well-intentioned. I don't think that that's true in any event, um, but at least the very charming vision of Odysseus. Well, which is the same as the Odyssey, um, which like, I, I think the Odyssey ends with him uh, like the, kill the suitors, and then he is able to convince Penelope that it is him because uh, of some infor- like some knowledge he knows that only he would know. Um, and then it's like, cool, he did it. End of book. Uh, which is kind of like this. I would agree with that. I think the way that they portrayed the story of um, Odysseus, Ulysses in this case, um, coming home and all of the adventures per se that he had to go through were um, took place in a period of time in America that was extremely um, visual and eventful. And he ran into many of those events um, and visions during the Great Depression while he was on his way home. Um, and that was really interesting and I think had a great parallel to the visions that you see in the Odyssey um, and the similarities between what Odysseus had to go through and his adventures to go home and how they were able to do something similar in the film while also creating like its own very unique plot line and, 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 and making that similarity of like the loose interpretation, but also making it a complete individual story on its own, too. 
Yeah, I, I picked this because it is sort of one of those, like, canonical, when you're talking about modern adaptations of myths, um, when it came out, it was, like, the fact that it was, like, loosely based on the Odyssey was definitely, like, a point to it, but it is certainly loosely based on the Odyssey, not, you know, like, Circe is definitely, like, bait, like, it, it's much more grounded in its basing on the myths, whereas this is much more, like, I like it feels like it's based on the odyssey and you can see some of the the commonalities but it's definitely not like a one-to-one correspondence or anything yeah Uh, it's i mean it's pretty close just in terms of like picking out the like obviously like george Clooney doesn't fight an actual cyclops right he fights a john goodman he fights john goodman with one eye (laughs) (laughs) right 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 which is very cool How do we feel about the Great Depression as a setting for this story? Um, I really, I think in in retrospect of of watching this film with the intention of being like a a conscious and critical consumer, um, I thought it was a really good time period to choose because the contrast of him of of Ulysses and his two comrades going through all of these things they they're not going through privilege and beautiful scenery and 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 all of these things that make it a happier oh everything is going to be fine like they meet people who are truly struggling they meet people who are incredibly complex and have poverty and tragedy in their backstories and who don't have a lot And they're going through and they're interacting with these people and in whatever measure possible. And, and there is that parallel to the Odyssey, but there's also you, you kind of get a sense to see of when he's charming these people, who exactly he's taking advantage of and how little they truly have for him to take advantage of in the first place. So I thought that was very well done. Well, and that last sentence is really interesting, Austin, because my next question was going to be, um, I've been ver- getting very into Hades Town recently, the new multi-Tony award-winning musical, which is also set. I don't think it's actually set in like the Great Depression, but it's a very Depression-era aesthetic. And I was wondering if we thought there was some reason that that spoke to, like, if there was something about that era and that aesthetic that kind of lends itself to imprinting these myths on like on it as a as a backdrop for a a reimagining well i I was also thinking about hades town when you asked the first question because like hades town and this are like almost 20 years separate so it's not a case of like just oh it's it's in the zeitgeist now the depression like it's it's definitely like two different pieces separately like coalescing on depression era iconography um Mm -hmm. yeah i i think that like austin what you were saying the immense poverty of so many and then the flip side of that which is like the power and wealth of the few does a good job at like sort of separating the mortals from the olympians right like menelaus is the uh the name of the, the governor which i love um uh, but, like, they are clearly supposed to be, like, the Olympians, and it's it's not that they're, you know, powerful or mortal or anything, it's just that they're wealthy and, like, have political power. 
Um, and in Depression Era South, that feels very much like the the correct sort of like power gap and wealth gap. Um, so that yeah, like it, I feel like if if you're gonna do an Amer like an American retelling, the Depression is a good period for it because of that like not not just the gap but the the immense poverty at the bottom. Um, and un unfortunately, it's sympathetic poverty in a way that if you were to do, like, a modern retelling in, um, like, a rundown suburb or, like, a rundown city these days, it wouldn't have that same, like, sympathetic resonance because, as a society, we're broken. I would agree with that. I don't think the, the visual impact, um on viewers would be the same if you chose to do that like during the I, I think I agree with the setting in terms of that you need to show the greater population in a time of severe struggle and we had like the manufacturing crisis in the 70s and then the housing recession in 2009 but I don't think any of those things would truly show the the devastation that the great depression visually had when we when we think of pictures and we think of the historical documentations behind how much everybody lost um and left it power i think mm -hmm. that is a parallel and structure to place it in um well any other thoughts on oh brother before we get sort of at our larger scale questions um my only other side comment would be i thought the three sirens were great Oh, yeah. Dixie Chicks. That made me really happy. Yep. <laughs> That's my favorite. That's my favorite musical number. I mean, uh, also, yep. we, we have been remiss by not commenting on the music, which is, I, I forgot how much I love this soundtrack, uh, where every single song came on. I'm like, oh, I love this song. So, yeah. No, the soundtrack was good. All right. Um, so, Martha, you threw a couple discussion questions up here on our doc. Um... Why are we still so fascinated with Greek myths? Uh, specifically, like, all of us got fascinated by them at a young age. Uh, and our fascination obviously continues. So uh, it's it's interesting that, like, many things that at least I was interested in as a child, I'm like, I don't care about that anymore. But, like, Greek myths have carried through. Well, and I think, and I have a, a little notation about this in the show notes. Um, I think a lot of it is similar to why we as a culture continue to be fascinated by fairy tales like i think there's a yes. lot in these stories well first of all mythology has the added shade of like the impossible like these are stories that are so big and like deal with creation myths and you know people doing impossible things and i think that there is a lot to be fascinated by that like just thinking about somebody who could like go to the sun and bring a piece of the sun <laughs> to the earth like that's such a wild concept <laughs> that i'm not um not surprised that we still like think about it um we tend to name big things after Greek mythological concepts like spaceships mm -hmm. Planets. Amazon. And, I, and I think it's because they encapsulate this idea of thinking about just like 
impossible and larger than life concepts. Like they they embody these. Um, there's a word I'm looking for that I can't. Uh, they embody where we want to go mm. as a, a people, I think. Aspirations? Yes, they're aspirational in their scope. Um, and the other side is, like, <laughs> the opposite side is that they're also family dramas, which, like, Cersei does a really good job at, like, showcasing. Um, and who doesn't love a good family drama? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of their themes and ideas you know, in in addition to being, you know, huge and bizarre and larger than life, their themes are also very identifiable. Yeah. Like, we have all, well, in, we have all dealt with family jealousy. <clears throat> we have all dealt with not feeling, like, like, maybe feeling like we don't fit inside our family at least at some point in our lives like these are these are things that are very recognizable concepts um and i think there might be something comforting in the idea that like all powerful gods also deal with not feeling as beautiful as your sibling <laughs> the, the problem is when that happens they just destroy a city in their wrath so <laughs> you know yeah um like the romantic drama the You're... I think some of those things we definitely saw in Cersei, but the and and maybe at a smaller level in Lore Olympus, but also the the idea is that the Greek mythology originally, I think and mythology in general, was kind of spun out of this idea to answer questions that people didn't have the answers to back in the day. And so historically they they looked at the sun and they were like, where did that come from? And why is that there? And, you know, all of these ideas that at the time were so much bigger than anything that they had access to know about. And these stories were created as a way to answer those questions and to to teach people morals and, and why you should or shouldn't do something, I guess. Um, and I think in a very similar way to how fairy tales were used in Europe to teach children not to do certain things. I think Pete and I have discussed the German um, children's riddles several times <laughs> over and how dark and terrible they are as a way to teach children not to do very specific things. Um, which is very entertaining and probably like a whole nother podcast, honestly. Yes, the great um, long-legged scissor man. Right. Oh my gosh. Cut oh, off your cut terrible. off your thumbs if you suck your thumbs. <laughs> well, and then yeah, there. I mean, there are so many, but I think from there, we when you think about these these myths, they they don't have happy endings, and and as a society, we're it, tragedies don't necessarily appeal to us the same way anymore. We want that Disney happy ending, and we don't get them with the Greeks very often. Um, a lot of people just die and um or are turned into something that is no longer accessible for the other lover and we're still drawn to them anyways and i think that that speaks to like the greater power of storytelling and how important they've been for so long that they they don't give us what we want but at the same time we still keep going back when you mentioned morals and two of our three homeworks were based on the odyssey which um like the the core fault of Odysseus is that is his hubris, right? Which is like your classic, um, especially Greek heroic fault, 
which has like followed us through you know western civilization for like 2500 years now so like it's it's an idea that i think still resonates because i think we still like the idea of a someone who is like you know their downfall is their own fault like it is not it like forces within their control are the reason that they are struggling um i think appeals to us a lot because then we can cast blame on people when they're uh you know not doing well Right. Well, and I think there's a lot of schadenfreude in these stories also. Mm, mm-hmm. yes. Like, like we still like being able to, I mean, and this is very connected with what you were just saying, Pete. We like being able to point to something and be like, you brought this on yourself. Yeah. Like, if only you weren't, if only you didn't. Uh, if only you weren't a Dapper Dan, a big... man. Yeah, <laughs> um, but all I mean, there there are so many so many of these stories that have to do with gods punishing mortals for like not recognizing their place, mm-hmm. which is a very like oh well she brought it on herself. With I mean, this almost feels like getting into when we were talking about classism several weeks ago with like birdie and wooster this is almost like you aspire to rise above your station and are punished for it right you you cannot be the greatest weaver because that's athena so you that's can... exactly what i was thinking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think that there's a, a self-righteous part of all of us that likes seeing um that kind of like seeing that punishment but also i mean the the other side to that is you know now that we have modern storytellers re-examining a lot of these stories and telling the other side of it like cersei was not righteously punished she was unfairly uh like un- unfairly used as the as a as tool a of blame yeah um so initially, I think you have a lot of these stories that are built on the joy of seeing people kind of put in their place. And now we get to re-examine them and say, but what did this character actually do to deserve this horrible thing that happened to them? I, I like, really was liked, it... I, I liked in Lore Olympus where, um, like, at the very beginning, they, uh, uh, Eros gets uh, Persephone drunk and puts her in the car for literally nothing she did, for something that Hades said. Um, yes, and that like that feels very much like on point for the the Greek uh, gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a scene there's a really quick line in Circe when Boreas, the the northern wind god, is talking about Narcissus, the mortal boy that both he and Apollo I think were in love with. And Boreas was just like, yeah, so I killed him, so Apollo couldn't have him. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Greek gods, not great. Because um, they're just humans, like, dialed up to 11 with no consequences. Uh... <laughs> so I'd like to get into something that Austin and I were talking about um, before we started recording. And Austin, I'm going to let you explain it, because I think that you were being more elo- you were more eloquent about it than I could be um, about the the idea that a lot of these stories are about overthrowing um, oppressive systems hmm. 
Oh, okay. Um, so one of the things that I had noticed, um, and to me this came about um, more while I was reading Cersei because that was the one that I did first of the homework assigned. Um, and I noticed that she as a woman is um, a minor female in the eyes of the gods around her. And she basically is, you know, as we already stated, she's put in her place and she is supposed to stay in her place and be content in her place and not look to higher aspirations or ambitions or desire anything other than what they've chose to carve out for her. And in the Odyssey, that's the only role that she's really given because the Odyssey isn't, you know, necessarily about her. Um, but in other traditional tellings as well, she is only confined to that single role and she is used as an aid for Odysseus, and that's the only purpose that she really serves. Mm -hmm. And so for the story to give her greater voice and development of where she came from and how she was discovering herself within the confines of her father's house, but then also once she was exiled to the island, she found herself in a system that she didn't really like. And I feel that when I was reading this, um, I started to see indications of her, you know, sometimes unsuccessfully trying to throw the, and it feels so funny to say this, the patriarchy um, which in in the role of the Greek gods is much more of a big deal, I think, with the immense amount of power that the fathers and the father roles have um, and how she tries to have her own power and make her own choices for herself without the consequences that the gods would then bestow on her. And you see that with um, the power plays of her being a, a nymph um, and being in the thrall of these gods who just come to her and they they make her recite prophecies or they they violate her essentially um, in a way that's very similar to the physical rape that she goes through and she doesn't like that for obvious reasons um, and and devises ways and is bold enough to put herself out there and dare these very powerful people to do something to her. And in the end, we see that she confronts the the foes of her story. She confronts Skyla, this this thing that she created that has then been used to hurt her. And she, you know, fixes that weakness. And she confronts um, Athena and fixes that situation um not necessarily in a way that she might have liked or predicted from the beginning but the conflict then is no longer there and she no longer has to answer to those consequences in the way that she perhaps would have foreseen and i think especially the most powerful thing was confronting her father and mm -hmm. fixing I, I keep calling it fixing but i i feel like she essentially takes the system that is broken for her and she maybe just removes it altogether from her life and her choices. And um, I 
I feel like that's really important. I feel like we see some of that in Oh Brother, Where Out Thou in, in just in how he escapes and tries to get home um, and, and some of those things there. But I think I, I saw it more in Laura Olympus and how Persephone is supposed to be this minor goddess. And, and I, I like how you said that, Martha, where people continue to underestimate her and I think that as that story develops, we'll see more of her removing the the expectations that are so low that people have of her and showing them what she can really do. Well, and it, it resonates a little bit less with me because the main character in A Brother Artho is a man. But I also think that a lot of Ulysses's tricks and things also hinge on people underestimating him yeah yes i would agree with that and like not fig not not guessing that like oh this could actually be him doing it um you know for for a number of reasons uh well and th- that's true for both uh ulysses in a brother art thou and odysseus in the odyssey um th- th- there's a line in in circe where he's like uh, what did you do when Agamemnon and, like, Achilles couldn't get, like, <laughs> couldn't sit down at the same table together? It's like, come up with a plan where they didn't have to. Uh, which, like, it it was a lot of, like, intentionally underplaying himself so that people would underestimate him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important that his strength is not so much in the physical arena, although he is very clearly physically strong but more in like talking other people into it's almost like when you solve something by making someone else believe it was their idea in the first place yes yeah which is probably a big reason of why he is athena's uh favorite boy yes (laughs) yeah uh yeah and, and like that that sort of is is the through line with like uh so so like all all the the um uh epic poems start with like the one line sentence of what they're about. Uh the Iliad is about like the wrath of Achilles. Um the Aeneid is about like arms and the man. Uh the Odyssey is the one with like the most complicated intro line to translate cuz it's like the man of twisting ways or like the complicated person or or like mm-hmm. all these different ways to try to like get at the idea that like Odysseus is clever and turn like turns things about and that sort of thing um which the greeks loved and the romans did not like as much so he was not as popular among the romans as the as he was amongst the greeks absolutely the romans were very straightforward i feel like everything we've seen the greeks definitely love their trickery yeah the romans thought he kind of (laughs) cheated they would I don't know that Odysseus would disagree. I just don't think he would, would think it was a bad thing. Right, yeah, totally. He's like, well, I still won, so... Well, well. Yeah. <laughs> well I think culturally it was a lot more appropriate, and he would have been applauded for that. Right. Yeah. Well, that was my little I... uh, history tangent. <laughs> <laughs> um... I believe that might be... I think so, too. Oh. This episode's going long, which is great, because, <laughs> like, Greek myths are always great to talk about a bunch. Um, so well, there's so much are... material too. Yeah, I was gonna say we could absolutely revisit this in the future. Yeah, like 
a we, whole different set of stories to talk about. We could do an only Orpheus and Eurydice episode. Oh boy. Entirely. Yeah. Speaking of Hadestown. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Austin, thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, thank absolutely. you. This was wonderful. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. Is there anywhere on the internet that you want people to be able to find you? Anything you want to plug? Um, I have my Instagram is Austin Renee. Um, so that would probably be the best one. I'm terrible at Twitter. You guys are much better than I am. <laughs> much better, aka I, much more addicted. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say I'm bad at Twitter in that I tweet too much <laughs> yes, about I am... stuff that I'm sure people don't care about. <laughs> I am on Twitter, and that is bad. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of Twitter, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at dydyh podcast. You can find us on Facebook, uh, Did You Do Your Homework? And you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. I think we're on Spotify now? We are on Spotify now. Heck yeah. Uh, Make sure you tell your friends to give us a listen and rate and review us. Uh, Your homework, as always, is to tell tell, uh, someone about the podcast and have them listen to it. Um, Martha, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, people can find me at all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter at tinyletter.com uh, forward slash Magical Martha. You can also listen to the brand new podcast that I do with friend of the show and repeat guest Marin Hagman uh, called Love Ya. It is a guided tour through the world of streaming teenage rom-coms uh, and updates on this very feed at on alternate weeks to Did You Do Your Homework? Yeah. What do you guys talk about next week? Uh, Alex Strangelove. Uh, Ooh, that's... I haven't watched that. Was that before he got yeah, his doctorate? Are... We are working our way. Ha ha ha. <laughs> we are working our way right now through the Netflix originals. So we started with uh, The Perfect Date, and we just did Sierra Burgess is a Loser. And uh, yeah, next we're going to take a deep dive into Alex Strangelove. Nice. Cool. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics, pop culture, and uh, anything else that comes across my desk. Next week, we are talking about animation with repeat guest friend of the show, Sarah Caputo. Um, Sarah is assigning Paranorman. I am assigning The Breadwinner. And Martha, what are you assigning? Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse. Uh, these are all animated movies, so uh, a nice movie-heavy homework uh, assignment for you for next week, or uh, next episode. Um, yep, uh, currently The Breadwinner is available on Netflix. Uh, Spider-Verse will be available on Netflix. I am not sure about the status of Paranorman. Right. All right. But well, you can always get these, you can always check these out from your local library. Plugs for local libraries. Uh, it seems like a good way to end this show. You can also uh, get a bunch of books about Greek myths from your Roman, uh, from your local library. Um, so, yeah. And read Zerse. Read Zerse. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Do uh, read all of them. Watch all of them. But Just a real quick sidebar. I just want to point out that this is one of the very few episodes where all three homework assignments were enjoyed by all three members of our panel. We should have, like, a wall 
of fame yes. for that for that situation. <laughs> All right. Well, we will talk to you in two weeks where we're talking about animation. Until then, class dismissed. Probably get it under an hour twenty. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> the 90-